Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. So when a wildfire is burning out there in the wilderness, as they often do, y'all are tired of listening about fire, but here we are. It's week 10. (laughs) 10 down, two to go. (laughs) When a wildfire is burning, uh, firefighters will use a variety of different techniques to try to put it out. And one of those techniques is called a fire break. And what a fire break does is it attempts to deprive a fire of fuel and to redirect its movement to a, a controlled area where it can safely burn out. A fire naturally burns in the path of least resistance, where fuel is easily available to it. Which, I don't know, logically makes sense to me because I do the same thing, right? Right? I mean, when I want a turkey sandwich, I'm much more likely to just go to Jersey Mike's or Jimmy John's than I am to go out into the wilderness, shoot a turkey, come home, bake a loaf of bread, and make a sandwich. I want the fuel that is quickly and easily available. So what firefighters will do in the wild is they'll dig giant trenches around the fire that act as a barrier between the flames and the source of fuel, you know, other trees, vegetation, or towns. And these trenches create a boundary for the fire that contains it and forces it to move in a specific direction where firefighters can extinguish it in a much more effective manner. And I tell you all of this because it's part of the firefighting strategy and because it's something that the early church had to contend with. If you've been here for any certain number of weeks leading up to this one, you know that we are in a sermon series called How to Start a Fire, where we're looking at the elements that were present at the time of the early church that allowed the message of the gospel to spread like a wildfire across the known world. And we've talked about a lot of different stuff, mostly focusing on a large amount of resistance that the early church faced from the outside. The the larger Jewish, and for all intents and purposes, Roman society was skeptical and oftentimes downright hateful towards the early community of, Jew, of Jesus' followers. And in a lot of ways, God used that to advance the mission of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. In fact, one of the worst persecutors of the church, a man named Saul, was converted to following Jesus as he was on his way to chase down and try and prevent the spread of the gospel. 
But what we're going to find now in today's part of the book of Acts is that some of the greatest threats to the advancement of Jesus' church would occasionally come from within the church itself. Which should give us some comfort because here in the 21st century, we are often still our own worst enemies. Am I right? You see, without knowing it and without really meaning it, some people within the community of Jesus are going to begin to build fire breaks, to dig trenches and install boundaries around the movement of the church. So if you were here last week, you may recall that we talked about the Apostle Peter and how he went to the house of a Roman centurion, a Gentile, non-Jewish man named Cornelius. And at a dinner party there, he preached the good news of Jesus to everyone who attended the party. Peter had received a vision from God that the gospel message was not to be constrained or contained to the people of Jewish descent. Now remember, Christianity began as a sect of Judaism. And Jewish people and non-Jewish people, well, they didn't intermix or even socialize very well together. But when Peter preached that sermon to that group of non-Jewish people, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And all of a sudden, the gospel was offered an unlimited source of fuel. And Saul, the man who was once attempting to shut down the movement of Jesus, sprang into action and began planting churches throughout the Gentile, non-Jewish, Greek, and Roman world. He formed a home base in the city of Antioch where he and his co-workers would go out from and begin the great expansion of the gospel around the world. And it's then that he began using his Greek name, Paul. This massive expansion, though, did not come without growing pains, much like any movement throughout all of human history. The most important growing pain we'll find comes in the chapter number 15 of the book of Acts. And this is going to be the very first called church council meeting. And it's called the Jerusalem Council. And wouldn't you know that the first church council meeting was called because there's conflict in the community. We don't have that anymore today, though, right? Yeah, never. There's a disagreement brewing, and so let's just dive in and see what this little budding conflict is really all about. So remember, Paul's busy, guys. He's going out, he's traveling, he's planting churches all throughout the known world, and he's coming back to rest, recuperate, and, and get some shade and fresh water in his home base of Antioch where the church is established and running pretty well. So he thinks probably he's going to go back and relax. And so 
This is what happens while Paul is hanging out. It says, Then certain individuals came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So, you know, Paul and his friends are, are just, they're just doing what they've been called to do, right? They're, they're going out, they're starting new Jesus communities everywhere that will accept them. And, and the church is growing. The, the spirit is responding to their work. Things are going great. People are coming to faith. The gospel is spreading. Everything seems like it's on the trajectory of, of greatness, success. And then those people show up. You know those people? Y'all know those people, right? They show up and they have to ruin the party. They're well-meaning. They're not bad people. They're just those people. They don't mean any harm. They're just, they've been thinking about stuff. You know, pastor, I've been thinking. <laughs> You can say that to me. It's okay. <laughs> These are the, the overzealous theologians of the community. In fact, they aren't even from the community. They're not even from Antioch or any of the places that Paul and friends have been working. They're, they're from Judea. They're from the area around Jerusalem, the center of the church's early activity. And they've come up to Antioch. You know, just to see what, what Paul's been up to. It's like when people from Lakeland come around here. Just to see what we're up to. And we got to behave, you know. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is all well and good, but you guys forgot something very important. You're telling them the good news, but you're not telling them the other side of it. These men... They need to be circumcised if they're going to be a part of Jesus' community. And that sounds really weird to us as 21st century Americans. But we do need to just take a minute to talk about it. You see, circumcision was the physical sign of the covenant between God and Israel. It was the way that the human body was marked to say, I'm from Israel. I belong to Yahweh's people. Yahweh is my God. And every single Jewish male had to be circumcised. And anyone who converted to Judaism, regardless of their age, had to be circumcised. And y'all, that's not a very good time. And so Paul and his buddies are preaching good news to the Greek and non-Jewish world, telling them that like the chains that have shackled them for their entire lives no longer apply. They no longer have to do all of these crazy rituals to try to appease the many, many gods of Rome or of Greece or from wherever they're from. No longer do you have to do all of this stuff. All you have to do is believe in the name of Jesus. And then those people show up and say, ah, there's one thing you got to do. And it's not good news. So what gives, right? 
Paul's going to step in. Paul always steps in. (laughs) So after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, put it so politely, they were probably yelling at each other. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all believers. Then when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. I'm going to pile it on. So they have an argument up in Antioch, and they can't come to a consensus as is to be expected. And so they decide that they'd better take this matter back to the head honchos in Jerusalem. You know, that's where Peter and the rest of the original apostles, the people that were closest to Jesus, all resided. Because at this time, it's the center of the Christian faith, just as it's the center of the Jewish faith. And so this all just kind of makes sense. And so Paul and and Barnabas and friends, they, they give testimony to all that God has been up to among the Gentiles, how the Holy Spirit has not only come, but has flourished throughout the Gentile world. And when they're finished giving their testimony, some other folks stand up to talk. Now, these are converts. These are people who follow Jesus, but who come to the Christian faith from the sect of the Pharisees. They stand up and they give their theological interpretation. You see, for them, Jesus and the Jesus faith all come from Judaism. And therefore, to properly follow Jesus, a person needs to follow the law of Moses, which includes being circumcised. You see, Jesus followed the law of Moses. The Jesus movement comes from Judaism, so it only makes sense. Except, you'll remember that God visited Peter in a vision and made a proclamation to him about the restrictive laws in the law of Moses. God said to Peter, what I have made clean. Let you or or no one call it unclean or profane. And so Peter is going to back Paul up. It says the apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of good news and become believers. 
And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor us have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter says, listen up. God has removed the dividing line. Stop trying to reinstall it. What once was symbolized by following the law and by circumcision is now symbolized by the coming of the Holy Spirit to people. And as we'll find out later, baptism of water. If that's what God sees and desires, then who are we to demand more? Who are we to demand that these people do what we have proven ourselves incapable of doing for our entire history? We can't keep 613 laws of Moses Why should we expect our Greek and Roman brothers to do the same? So Peter goes on a few lines further. He says, therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. Basically, Peter's like, listen, we just need to tell them not to engage in stuff that is linked to the old worship of other gods that they partook in. No meat sacrificed to idols. No engaging in the kind of sexual indecency that was prevalent in the temples of your Greek and Roman gods. No rituals of any kind that might tempt you or lure you back to your old ways of living. And that's literally it. That's all that is required. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus and avoid everything that will cause you to call on the name of any other God. You see, what we see from these well-meaning but misguided people within the church is an attempt to create a uniform society by demanding that outsiders and newcomers take upon themselves the traditions and customs of the Jewish part of the Jesus movement. They want the Jesus community to be culturally homogenous because in a lot of ways, that is just simply all they knew. The Jews had long placed very rigid boundaries around themselves in the ways that they lived their lives. They were very intentional about being set apart from the rest of the world, from the rest of the nations. Everything that they had ever known set them apart from the rest of the world. And so it 
it really only makes common sense that they would want to protect that. But the Holy Spirit and Peter know that this is not the way of the future because it was never really the end goal of the past. See, God has long celebrated the diversity of humanity. God is the one who originally created all of the nations in the first place, and it's written at the end of all things in the book of Revelation that the nations will gather together to worship God in their own language and tongue. See, what God sees is the beauty of diversity in the family of humanity. And all that God requires for people to be a part of this big family called Christianity, this big family called the church, is that people would believe in the name of Jesus and walk away from the worship of other gods. No more, no less. No special clothing required for admission. No special food. No special body markings. While I was at my last church in Dunedin, I pastored a separate congregation of people from Micronesia. And they met in the afternoon at the church, and they were members of our church, but they had a completely different worship experience and way of living than us Americans who worshiped in the morning. This was my very first, like, long-term experience in cross-cultural ministry, so I had a lot of stuff that I needed to learn and a lot of things that just made me wonder and made me think. And so I ended up writing a thesis for school that sought to figure out a way to develop more unity, deeper relationships between the English-speaking and Micronesian congregations. I asked this question, like, what would it look like? What would it take for this to truly be one church community? And I wondered maybe if we all needed to worship together rather than separately. So I did a lot of polling and found out something kind of shocking to me. Uh, the English-speaking congregation had a real desire to be in community with the Micronesians. But they had absolutely zero desire to show up in the afternoon and go to the Micronesian worship service. And I was, I was kind of stunned. I was like, that's, that's rude. <laughs> you know? Until I completed my polling of the Micronesian community, where I found out that they had a deep desire to be in community and in relationship with the English-speaking part of our church, but they had absolutely zero desire for them to really show up in the afternoon and certainly zero desire to wake up early on Sunday morning and go to the American church service. They wanted to continue to worship in their way, they wanted their kids to worship in their way as they grew up. And they wanted to remain separate in this aspect of their Christian life. What became clear to me was that these people who had very different cultural experiences 
were completely happy continuing to experience worship separately. But they were completely willing to form relationships with one another. They didn't want some kind of uniformity forced upon them. So what we began to do was explore other ways for people to build meaningful relationships. And what I found through, through research and other uh, churches that had similar types of cultural makeups was that the way that people really truly formed bonds together was by serving the world around them together. And so we just became intentional about making sure that everyone was invited to church events to VBS, to serving the homeless, even just cleaning up the church grounds or doing other community projects that brought the communities together and allowed them to work side by side and be on mission together. What we found was that wonderful and beautiful relationships were built. And this is the real message that comes out of the Jerusalem Council. We don't want the kingdom of God to be uniform. We want the kingdom of God to be diverse. And it is diverse. I go to clergy gatherings with all of my colleagues here in Fort Pierce, and it is deeply diverse. We look different. We dress different. A lot of us believe very different things in some aspects of the faith. But we don't highlight that when we gather together. We sit down in a room and we talk about how are we going to serve Fort Pierce and the mission of God in this city together better. Our differences don't mean that we aren't family. Our differences don't stop us from being on mission together. So while the Pharisees of the church in Jerusalem meant to make sure that the Jesus movement was theologically pure, that they were checking the right boxes and that everything was in line, what they were inadvertently doing was building a firebreak, digging a trench around the Jesus movement. They were unknowingly trying to force the gospel to take the path of least resistance. But by placing additional requirements, strict, stringent requirements on outsiders, they would have effectively stopped outsiders from joining the movement altogether. And the movement would have been trapped to sit and die safely in Jerusalem. But Peter, Peter says, no. This is not how it's going to be. This is not what God wants. God wants unity in mission, not uniformity in practice. Let me say that again. God wants unity in mission, not uniformity in practice. And we should learn from this too, 
because we don't want to build barriers around the church. We don't want to dig trenches down orange, up whatever that road that is, down A and back down sixth, right? Fifth, five, yeah, sixth, whatever road that is up there, right? We don't want to build a trench, a fire break around this building. We don't want to build a fire break around our mission. The good news is, though, I've been here long enough to know that we don't really have a problem with that. We don't really have a problem with demanding uniformity here. We, we let all kinds of people become a part of our community. We're really good at seeing people for who they are and celebrating that, right? We're really good at being on mission together with organizations around us. We continue to seek out and be better equipped to, to serve our neighbors because we meet with those who are doing the work already. And so today is really just an opportunity for me to encourage you. You're doing really good. You're doing really good work. You're making the world look more like the kingdom of God. So let's not give up on that vision. Let's not be discouraged. Let's agree to never dig trenches around the gospel. Let's agree to be people who build bridges across the trenches that other people have already dug. Let's agree to be a church that is open, welcoming, and affirming to all. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to you and we just thank you that all you ask for us from us is our hearts. We thank you just for the great love with which you love us and all people. And we pray that you would just help us to continue to see the opportunities, to continue to, to see people as you have made them, not demand some kind of false uniformity from those who want to be a part of what you're up to here in this church and in this world. God, but that we would just give them the, the gospel truth, the message that Jesus came, that Jesus loved this world, that Jesus loves this world, and that Jesus came for all people. All people who would dare to offer their hearts and their lives to call on his name, to drop all of the, the false worship all of the, the false notions of success, the love of power, the love of money, the love of whatever identity pulls people away from following after you with their whole hearts. God, that we as, as your people would, would remember that the dividing line has been removed and that it's not our job to impose a new one. 
that it's not our job to decide who's in or who's out, but it's our job to call all people and remind them or tell them for the very first time that God says you are in. Will you come? Will you follow him with us? Will you be on mission? God's mission here in this world with us together. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.